As you're being seated, find Genesis chapter 1. After last week's sermon on Genesis 1, and then um, our discussion on Wednesday night at discipleship groups, I just felt um, just the need to come back and answer some big questions from Genesis 1. And I had actually started preparing a sermon for Genesis 2, but just felt led to go this direction. And so I hope this will be helpful as we consider, I'm going to give you seven questions that either I heard from someone else or I thought about myself related to Genesis 1. And, and some of these I think are essential. Like we need to know this. We need to believe this. Some are interesting, but we may not ever really know the, the answer, you know, unless God tells us in eternity. And some of these maybe God has just not intended for us to know everything, right? His ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. Um, but we're going to do our best with his word to dive in and find answers, right? That's what we want to do. As we do that, I want to give you three truths that inform our answering of questions. And these are so important for us as we consider any question in the Bible, and especially these foundational truths of Genesis 1. Here are the three truths. First, we believe the Bible is true. That's number two there. But number one is, we believe the Bible is true. Um, some matters of interpretation of Scripture, we know, can be debated, and, and there can be different interpretations of some parts of Scripture. But we believe that this is the holy, inspired Word of God, and this is where we go to find the answers. We believe that. Psalm 19.7 says, the law of the Lord is perfect. The New Testament says the Word of God is inspired by God or breathed out by God. It is God's Word, and it's useful for us in every way. So, number one, we believe the Bible is true. Number two, we believe our faith is, is real. We believe faith is real, and when I say real, what I mean there is it really matters to us, and by our faith, we're able to understand God's Word. Hebrews 11.3 says this, related to Genesis 1, by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. And so as we approach the word and as we approach these questions, we understand that it's by our faith in Christ, and our faith in his word, that we're going to find the answers. Number three, we believe the Holy Spirit is helpful. We believe the Holy Spirit is more than helpful we believe the Holy Spirit enlightens us. He illuminates the Word. Have you ever read the Bible and maybe read a verse over and over again, and then one day you, something clicks, like a light bulb goes on? And in that moment, the Holy Spirit is illuminating, bringing to light what God has intended for us to see in His Word. And listen to me, I don't care if you're 10 or if you're 100 years old, as you grow in that sanctification process we heard about, the Holy Spirit can continue to illuminate and enlighten us to the truths of God's Word. And our desire is to continue to grow in that enlightenment of the Spirit. So, we trust the Word, we read it with faith, and we depend on the Spirit to show us truth. So let's dive into the seven questions with those um, things set in our minds. First, a very basic but still a big question, where did God come from? I think this question is so interesting because a small child might ask it, but the greatest scholar might spend years studying it. What a, uh, 
variety of things that can happen with this question. Where did God come from? Maybe this is the most foundational question of all. Is there a God, right? Does God exist? And where did he come from? Here's the answer to this big question. I'm going to give you the answer now. God is eternal. He had no beginning and he has no end. God, someone said, is the uncreated one. Everything else is created, right? God is the uncreated one. He is eternal. Listen to some scriptures related to this. Psalm 90 verse 2, before the mountains were born or you brought forth the world from everlasting to everlasting, read these three words with me, ready? You are God. For this is what the high and exalted one says, this is Isaiah 57, he who lives forever whose name is holy. And we know Revelation 1.8, I am the Alpha and Omega, Alpha and Omega, those are in the Greek alphabet, the first letter and the last letter. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. God is eternal, and being eternal God who's always existed, he sees things differently than we see things, right? Our vision, our sight is limited. I was trying to like find some illustrations about God being eternal, and they're really hard to come up with. Um, but I found this illustration written by a pastor years ago. He said, imagine you're standing on the sand uh, of a shore, and you're looking out at an ocean, and it's endless, right? You can't, you, all you see is the horizon in the distance. It's all you can see. And as you look out there, you're just amazed and astonished at the depth of what you see. And as you see that, he said, we are like the small boats sailing across this vast ocean of time. We go through the highs and lows, the storms and the calms. But our journey is limited to the visible horizon, the thing we can see, right? Our journey is limited by what we can see. But now consider God as the one standing on the shore. When God stands on the shore and looks at the entire ocean, how does he see it? He sees it all, right? He sees beyond our ability to see. He's not confined to our timeline. He is eternal. He is, as the scripture said, from everlasting to everlasting. He is not constrained by past, present, or future as we are. As a matter of fact, listen to this and let this blow your mind. God sees the entirety of human history in a single glance. That's kind of big, right? That's God, though, right? That's our God. That's the Almighty. He sees differently than we do. Psalm 90 verse 4 says a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by. And so I think this is a great time for application here is think about this. As you go through life's journey and life's struggles and ups and downs and imagine the, the, the ship on the sea and it's stormy. When we go through those waves, we know that our God sees everything that's happening and everything that's going to happen. And as a matter of fact, the scripture says God has things planned for us and he knows those things, whether they're ups or downs. And God will bring us through those things. As we stay faithful to him, he will bring us through those things. And as Romans 8 said, and as we just sang a moment ago, he will work all things together for our good. So it is good that God is eternal. It's good that God sees all things and knows all things. Because when we go through the hard things, the eternal God is with us. And he has plans for us, a purpose for us, that brings us somehow good and brings him glory. So review question number one, where did God come from? He is eternal. He, is, he has always existed. The scripture says it. We believe it by faith. 
and the Spirit of God in us reassures us of that truth. Big question number two. How can we understand that God is eternal? Like, that's a big question. The first one's a big question. How can, how can I understand that, or how can I um, think more about that? Well, I want to give you a couple thoughts here. And the, the one is just this. God is different. We cannot try to reason out all the things of God, can we? Is the Trinity something you can just reason out in your mind? I can't. That God is three in one, is that reasonable to us? Is even God creating all things from nothing reasonable to us? Not something we can really reason out. We have the scripture and faith and the spirit. So the answer here is God is different. And thank the Lord he's different because he is God, right? Let me give you a few characteristics of God related to what we've already talked about. Number one here, he is infinite. Think about this truth. He is not limited by time or space. We are, right? We're in this room right now. We cannot be right here and at home right now, can we? I mean, your mind might be at the restaurant that you're going to later or something like that if you're thinking about lunch. But really, right, we're here. And we can't go back to yesterday. We can't go to tomorrow, can we? We are limited. But God is infinite. Look at some of these texts that speak to this. Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding has no limit. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. I want to show you 1 Kings 8, 27, when Solomon says this, will God really dwell on earth? The heavens... Even the highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. And I also love Romans 11, 33 through 36. I'll read it to you. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things to him be the glory. And then Job 11, 7 through 9 says, Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. We see that our God is infinite. He, is, he has boundless wisdom, boundless limits. There are no limits with God. Infinite. The second thing I want you to see, another attribute is he is omnipotent. He is all-powerful, omnipotent. This means he has the power to do anything and everything he so chooses. God can do and will do anything and everything he so chooses. He is all-powerful. Here's some text on this. Jeremiah 32, 17. He says, ah, sovereign Lord, you've made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm, nothing is too hard for you. Jesus said in Matthew 19, 20, with man this thing is impossible, but with God all things are possible. In Job 42, 2, he says, I know you can do all things, and watch, no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who can stop the purposes of God? If God wants to do something, who can stop that thing from being done? And I hope you would say, at least in your head right now, nobody. Who can stop an all-powerful God? Nobody. Right? He is God. 
Psalm 147.5, great is our Lord and mighty in power. He has no limit. As we think about the omnipotence of God, think about how that works in our lives. That whatever it is that we're going through, that we need, or the help from God we need to know he is able, whether he gives us the thing we ask for or not, right? We know he is able to give us everything we need to know him, to love him, and to live this life. He's omnipotent. He's all-powerful. I love that. Next, next attribute, he is omniscient. Omniscient means he is all-knowing. The second part of that word is related to the word we have for science. God knows all, all-knowing. Here's some scripture for this. Psalm 139, 1 through 4. I have a few of them here. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Remember the former things, those of long ago. I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. Listen to the word of the Lord. He says, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. This is God, all powerful, all knowing. Proverbs 15, 3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Hebrews 4, 13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Matthew 10, 29 and 30, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the hairs of your head are all numbered. These verses and their others reiterate to us that God knows every single thing about us. From the big things to the small things, from the things that hurt us from our past to the things we're going through right now and the things that will come, the all-knowing God is also all-powerful to help us through these situations. This should be a comfort. This should be an assurance. This should bring us peace to know this is our God. Number four, or excuse me, number three, or four, whatever the number is, he is omnipresent. He is omnipresent. He is able to be everywhere at all times. Again, these all relate to his, him being eternal and infinite, that God is able to be wherever he wants to at all times. Psalm 139, 7 through 10, the psalmist said, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Is there anywhere we could go in this entire universe where God is not there? Jeremiah 23. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Who can hide in secret places so that I cannot see them, declares the Lord? Do not I fill the heaven and earth, declare, declares the Lord? I love those questions God asks. Rhetorical, right? Is, is, the answer is, of course. Proverbs 15.3. I read this earlier. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Acts 17. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. And then Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, what's it say? You are with me. We cannot hide from God. 
Isn't that an interesting thought? How many of us have tried that? We've tried that before. Whether we, maybe you're in sin or you're in a season of sin or struggle and you're like, I'll just hide from God. Isn't that ridiculous? That's like when the kids play hide and seek and they get behind the curtains, right? I think I said this the other day and you can see their feet poking out. I see you right there. What are you doing, right? But in a more serious sense, when I am, am thinking I'm getting away with something or you think you're getting away with something or you're, I can do this sin, it's fine. Nobody will know. Nobody will find out what I'm doing. Someone said when, we're, when we sin in private, we have an audience of one, capital O-N-E. We can't hide from God. He is omnipresent. And that, so that could encourage us to sanctification, encourage us, hey, knowing God's always watching, I need to act right. Are your kids like that? If you're watching them, they're doing the right thing. As soon as you turn your back, they might try something sneaky. Nobody's kids are like that, just mine. Do we do that with God? Do we come in here and act good? I'm going to be sweet in church and do all the right things, and we leave, and, well, God's not watching me out there in my car or at home or wherever. Isn't that silly? And God's looking at us, and our feet are poking out from the curtains, and he's like, I see you. And so that could be a warning for us, right? To, let's pursue holiness, pursue sanctification, avoid our sin, and, and turn to Christ, but also his omnipresence is a comfort to know he's always with us. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me. And so it really helps us in our perseverance in Christ, our sanctification, and helps us with our, our comfort. So, how do we answer this question? God is different. How can we understand this stuff about God? Well, he is just different. The big question number three, and I think the other, these uh, last ones are a little shorter. Big question number three, how, I'm sorry, did God create the heavens and the earth in six literal days? Short answer, yes. Um, we discussed this last week for a moment. We discussed it on Wednesday night. Um, there are people who believe different, differently on this, even some in the church, in the Christian church. Um, and so here are a few different views I want to show you um, as we consider this question. Um, there are young earth creationists. Those people believe in the literal 24-hour days of creation. As we said last week, he says the evening and the morning was the first day after each day, right? And he has six days where he creates all things. The seventh day is the day of rest. And so the position that most of us, I think, will probably hold is this top position here, the young earth creationism, which says the earth is 6,000 6, to 10,000 years old, something in that range. People, it's, there's a range that people debate, but it's a younger earth. And we say that to say God created everything in, in one day at a time, six days. And we say that to say God could create things mature. And we also know that the flood, right, the flood could certainly have an effect on how things have aged in the world. But there are other views as well. Old earth creationism, these people will kind of take Genesis 1 more figuratively and would say that the earth is millions of years old or much older than, than I would say it is. Um, and they do that, I think, to try to rationalize some things in the scripture. Um, there's theistic evolution, these people who believe in God but believe God used evolution to create all things. Um, and there's, of course, atheistic evolution, people who don't believe in God and believe all things happen because nothing began to spun around and exploded and big bang and now we have stuff. Um, so here are some different views, but, and I, I said that very quickly on purpose, but the thing that I come back to on this is below that line, 
are people, are, I'm not just asking, are people below that line? We know the bottom ones are, but are the others denying the omnipotence of God, that God could do it in a day, or that God, or even the omniscience of God, that God could create things the way he wanted them to be created. So that's my problem with it. It feels as if the ones below the line either ignore God or diminish God's creative power as I read Genesis 1. And so I'm sure, by the way, there are good biblical teachers who hold to at least the second one on that list. Um, but that's my answer to that, that question. Number three, I believe he created it in six literal days. Number four, again, we mentioned this last week, but I want to just clarify. Is there a gap of unspecified time between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2? It's called the gap theory. Look with me at Genesis 1-1 and 2. As you read this, do you think there is a span here of time, or does it read kind of straight through? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And the earth was without form, and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved upon the waters. Now again, this is popular because of, uh, for one reason, a couple of study Bibles put this out years ago and put this theory out there and believed it. They say there's this span of time between 1 and 2, verse 1 and 2, where that's where Satan fell, the world was corrupted, um, dinosaurs lived and things like that and they use that to kind of explain the age of the earth that it is older um, again there are biblical people that hold to this theory to try to uh, explain Genesis 1 um, I think just the just the the straight reading of this word as well as if we were to list out all of their arguments I think they're pretty explainable we're not going to do that this morning and that's why this gap theory has not really been in favor amongst, I would say, conservative biblical scholars in, in our day, um, but it's definitely out there. But I want to mention that to you again. I believe this is a straight through thing from verse 1 to verse 2. Next question, verse 5. Question 5. This is for Junior, but I think it's helpful. How does God live outside of time? but also put himself into time. Anybody, anybody else ever thought that before? You're like, what are you talking about? God is outside of time, infinite. He can see it all at once. And yet, at times, he puts himself into time. Correct? So, how does he do that? Why does he do that? Why does that matter? Well, let me give you this false teaching called deism. I'll give you a definition here. Deism is a belief we do not hold to. Deism came about in the 17th, 18th centuries in the Enlightenment period. And here are some key tenets. Deism does believe there is a higher power, a supreme being. But for them, reason trumps scripture. Reason, science, thought is more, is more important than the scripture. And so right there, they lost us, right? because we believe the scripture is the authority. Number three, they believe God is detached from creation. Deists believe God, God made creation like a wind-up toy, right? Where he took the toy, he got it started, and he let it go, and God's just watching from afar, not ever intervening, that God does not intervene in the things that are happening in this world. So we can't believe that, can we? 
For one, Christ came right here to this earth. For two, God still works in our lives. And so we cannot hold to this detachment theory. These people also believe organized religion is unnecessary. Um, but they do emphasize, mis- misspelled there, sorry, emphasize moral conduct. They do think people should try to be good to appeal to this higher power. But again, we know that's futile, isn't it? We can't be good enough for God, can we? That's why we have Christ. A famous deist, by the way, is our third president of the United States. Very famous, known for this. That's Thomas Jefferson was a deist. And a few other people of that, of that ilk were um, deists. So, I want to contrast that to answer the question that I just asked about how does God live outside of time and put himself into time. It's rooted in these two words, which still go back to his, eternal, his, his being eternal and infinite. Look at these or write these down. God is transcendent. He exists beyond creation. He is transcendent above all things. As we've already said, he can see all things at once. And I've got the scriptures again. We've already went over these. Before the mountains are brought forth from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And I just have the same scriptures over and over again about this, but he is transcendent above and beyond all things existing over time. And so we just know this. We trust this. And our God is, transcends time, transcends space, transcends life as we know it. But we have to know this as well. He is imminent. Transcendent means far away. Imminent means close. So within his framework, within God's timing, he interacts with humanity. So God is both far and near. So when I see his transcendence, I say, we worship you, God, because you are holy and great and different and powerful and sovereign and eternal and infinite. And so we worship you. When I think about his imminence, I think, God, we thank you that you're near to us. And we can know you and serve you and love you. And so when we see these two things about God, they are, especially the imminent part, it is best spelled out with John 1.14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. As imminent as imminent could be. And it says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. This is a very deep question, by the way, and we could spend years talking about it. But it is a profoundly deep theological concept to say God exists outside of time, but enters time to work as he wishes. But I would even argue with us this morning, this is a core concept that we need to think about and believe. As we consider who is God, we need to consider these attributes of God. Don't get, you should never, by the way, if you're like, I'm kind of bored of all these attributes of God, that's not a good sign. I know Christians who spend their lives just going through the attributes of God. That's what they study each week. Take a different attribute every week. That's a good sign that you're trying to know your creator. Question six, this is the shortest one of all. Question six, how do we handle all the questions we have about Genesis 1, and I would say about Genesis 2 and Genesis 3, all the way to Revelation? How should we handle all these questions? 
We study the word, right? We don't give up. We seek what the word says. We pray, God, help me understand it. We seek counsel. Look, it's good, isn't it, to ask other believers. I'm telling you, if, you, if you're not able to make it to Sunday school right now, every week I'm in Sunday school, we're not, it's not just one person teaching the class and everybody sitting there asleep. We're asking questions. We're diving into different topics that are very interesting, by the way. And we're seeking counsel from one another. Seek counsel through good, trustworthy Christian literature. We have a table back there with good, trustworthy Christian literature that can help shine light on the truth, on the scripture. And then, of course, we trust that God, we, God will show us what we need to know. And whatever we don't know, we trust him that we don't need to know that thing for now. So that's a good filter. My final question, number seven. What does Genesis 1 have to do with our salvation? What does that have to do with anything? Like For some of you, this sermon may not even be that exciting this morning. You may want to hear more about how has this helped me every single day, although I've tried to tell you that. The omnipotent, all-powerful God can help you every single day. But what what does this really have to do with me knowing God and going to heaven and being a Christian? Well, I would argue this. It has everything to do with it. Let me show you a few. First, just as God initiated creation, God initiated your salvation. You do not wake up one day and go sit in a church and hear a preacher and think to yourself, you know what, he makes a lot of sense right now. I'm going to believe in Jesus. You may have thought that's what happened, but what happened was you heard the preaching of the word of God and God shined a the light of truth, open, giving you a new heart, showing you that you are a sinner in need of a savior, and you realize in that moment, oh no, I'm lost, I'm undone, I need a savior. And you heard a preacher say, hey, that savior is Jesus alone. So you repented of your sins, and you put your faith in Christ. God initiated creation, and he finished it, God initiated your salvation, and he finished it. Number two, God brought light to a dark world. Genesis 1 says, The earth was without, without form, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the first thing God created was what? Light. God said, let there be light. Just as God said, let there be light to the dark world, God bring lights to a dark soul, a dead sinner, by giving us the truth of Christ. Number three, God created by his word, and God saves by his word. Right? Y'all see the parallels here? God said, let there be light. He, he created by the power of his word, and when he saves us, it's because we hear the truth of Christ. We hear that word, that gospel, the good news of Jesus, death and resurrection. We hear that, and we're saved by his word. The fourth one. And we're jumping ahead a little bit to the end of chapter 1 and some of chapter 2. But God created man in his image. But that image is messed up by the fall in Genesis 3. But Jesus Christ is the perfect image of God. Colossians 1.15 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God showing us who God is. It says he is the radiance of God's glory in the book of Hebrews. 
What's God like? Well, the first place to look is at Jesus. He is God. The Son, as I said in Hebrews, is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His being, and He sustains all things by the power of His Word. Finally, man distorted the image of God by our sin, by Adam's fall and our sin, the sin nature we have because of Adam. I always picture a mirror for some reason when I think about the image of God. And the mirror is shattered so that when we look at it, you can't even see yourself right, can you? It's all messed up. Jesus came as the perfect image of God, and in a way only he can, he restores that image so that your mirror is put back together. So that when you look in that mirror, you see a new creation, as we see in 2 Corinthians as it says in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled faces, we contemplate the Lord's glory. We're being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord. Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3 show us our depravity, our sin. But the rest of Scripture shows us that in Christ, we are restored. And then Romans 8, 29 says, For those God foreknew, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what God is doing. In our lives, He saves us, and then He is, through that sanctification process, making us more and more like Jesus. That's why God saved you, not just to go to heaven, not just to be a good person, he saved you, that while you are here, while I'm here, we will continue to grow in this process of being less and less like this world and more and more like Jesus. Now, do we struggle with that? We all do, don't we? That's why we need the prayer and the word and the church. But to just to know this morning, Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is this big light that says you need to understand this because you need to see what it means, what it fully means when Christ comes on the scene to die for sinners. And so I hope these questions have given you some answers. We probably have a hundred extra questions from this. Ultimately, as I look back at the questions we asked this last week, as I look back at, back at Genesis 1, here's what I wrote. I think it's up here. What a mighty God we serve. And this ought to lead us to praise. This ought to lead us to praise him when we think about who he is and all that he's done and all that he is. We should never run out of praise for our God. Should we? Never. We can never exhaust our praise. So I pray that we would just consider who he is, what he's done, as we conclude today. I want us to pray, and I'm going to pray over us Psalm 104, which I believe is really related to what we've talked about this, this week and today. So would you bow? 
And this will be our closing prayer. So when I finish this, you are dismissed to fellowship and And before I pray, just thank you for being here today, and you're welcome Wednesday night at 6.30. We'd love to have you, and, but we'll dismiss with this prayer as I pray Psalm 104 over us. Let all that I am praise the Lord. O oh Lord my God, how great you are. You are robed with honor and majesty. You are dressed in a robe of light. You stretch out the starry curtain of the heavens. You lay out the raptors of your home in the clouds. You make the clouds your chariot. You ride upon the wings of the wind. The winds are your messengers. Flames of fire are your servants. Lord, you place the world on its foundation so it would never be moved. You clothe the earth with floods of water, water that covered even the mountains. At your command, the waters fled. At the sound of your thunder, it hurried away. Mountains rose and valleys sank to the levels you decreed. Then you set a firm boundary for the seas, so they would never again cover the earth. You make springs pour water into the ravines, so streams gush down from the mountains. They provide water for all the animals. And the wild donkeys quench their thirst. The birds nest beside the streams and sing among the branches of the trees. You send rain on the mountains from your heavenly home. You fill the earth with the fruit of your labor. Lord, you cause grass to grow for the livestock and plants for people to use. You allow them to produce food from the earth, wine to make them glad, olive oil to soothe their skin, and bread to give us strength. The trees of the Lord are well cared for the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. There the birds make their nests and the storks make their homes in the cypress. High in the mountains live the wild goats and the rocks form a refuge. You made the moon to mark the seasons and the, suns, and the sun knows when to set. You send the darkness and it becomes night. Then the young lions roar for their prey, stalking the food provided by you. Then people go off to their work where they labor unto evening. O oh Lord, what a variety of things you have made. And Lord, in wisdom you have made all of them. The earth is full of your creatures. Here's the ocean, vast and wide, teeming with life of every kind, both large and small. See the ships sailing along and the sea creatures which you made to play in the sea. They all depend on you to give them food as they need it. When you supply it, they gather it. You open your hand to feed them, and they are richly satisfied. But if you turn away from them, they panic. When you take away their breath, they die and turn again to dust. But Lord, when you give your breath, life is created. May the glory of the Lord continue forever. And Lord, may you take pleasure in all that you have made. And we will sing to the Lord as long as we live. And we will praise our God to our last breath. May all our thoughts be pleasing to you. 
for we rejoice in the Lord. Let all that I am praise the Lord. Praise the Lord.